Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Electables. I am Doug Thornell, uh, and I'm joined today by uh, an old friend. Uh, we've known each other a long time. He's also been on the show. He's one of our. He was one of our first guests back when we got this going. Uh, John Anzalone, who's one of the um, preeminent, uh, well, most respected pollsters within the uh, the industry. Uh, he also happens to be a top pollster for Vice President Joe Biden's campaign uh, and has done a lot of work all over the country, in particular does a lot of work. He has had a lot of success winning races in the South. Um, he actually lives in Alabama. Uh, he and I worked on uh, the Florida governor's race uh, back in 2018, um, and so we're lucky to have him. And uh, John, uh, thank you so much for joining the Electables again. Um, how you holding up, my friend? Well, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, holding up fine. Uh, clearly, feel like you know, got a lot more blessings than than most people. I will say that you know, we're sitting here on what June 2nd. And I think the whole country has been through a lot, you know, um, but I don't think that, you know, I can't remember a time in history where you've kind of gone through three crises, right? I mean, you have a health crisis, you have an economic crisis, and now you have, I don't even know what you would, you know, what's the proper term, but you have an unrest, a racial uh, unrest crisis, a police brutality crisis, um, but they're all three together. And I think that like everyone was weathering the first two and i think that this third one at least for me personally has has certainly taken me aback uh in a way that i haven't been in in a long while yeah it was almost like the sort of straw that broke the camel's back um if the camel's back was even still um unbroken you know i mean i think that you you know the a pandemic alone that has killed, you know, a hundred thousand plus Americans and caused economic wreckage all over the, the country has altered the lives of so many people. Um, that alone obviously would be, a, you know, a lot for everyone to manage. Um, uh, but when you couple into that, what we're seeing around the country, what we're seeing out of the White House, um, the the level of frustration that exists among so many people about how our, you know, criminal justice system works, how we're treated, how African Americans are treated by police officers. Um, now we're seeing how, you know, our government is treating, you know, the the Trump government is, uh, re you know, reacting to this in a way that is uh, essentially using military force against Americans who are protesting uh, peacefully. Um, you know, I think those images will be, uh, will last for a long time. Um, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, but I, that's what I think about, you know, the, the images uh, back then that are, you know, that we, we see in the history books. And I, and I feel like that's what this moment is, is, uh, building towards. Yeah. And, you know, of all three crises, each one, there's been a lack or void in leadership at the national level. Um, and you saw on the health crises and the economic crises, the governors, state governors, Democrats and Republicans, um, it, it was not just one party. 
fill the leadership void uh, that was created by Trump's actions and inactions, right? Mostly inactions in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, this third crisis is, again, um, one that is mostly going to be dealt with on the leadership side from state and local officials because there's a complete void uh, uh, of leadership by Trump. The difference between the three crises is that, you know, the, the inactions and inactions had negative impacts on the first two, without a doubt. But here he's actually fanning the flame. Like he is actually um, almost trying to make um, the situation worse with his, you know, tough law and order um, language and, you know, um, telling the governors to go and dominate. Um, you know, he actually is in his rhetoric and actions um, creating an environment that is more divisive. Um, and it's really, it's really unbelievable. And quite frankly, you know, I don't know if you saw Joe Biden's speech today. I did. But the contrast, yeah, yeah the contrast just could not be any more stark. Um, I mean, you have Joe Biden who, you know, is looked like a president, uh, but more importantly, not only was showing leadership, was showing compassion, was showing resolve, um, and was talking to the nation um, and to the protesters and, and to the victims, um, you know, in a way that you would hope a president would speak um, in a time of crisis, whether that president was Democratic or whether that president was Republican. Um, and you've seen Republican presidents be compassionate, right? I mean, you saw George Bush W. at his finest, probably right, uh, after 9-11, um, regardless of what you think about him and his policies, et cetera. Um, and this president has zero ability uh, to bring people together. Um, he literally had a press conference on the Rose Garden where he threw out some unity rhetoric and then walked across the street, you know, after, you know, the police had cleared peaceful protesters with, you know, what, rubber bullets and, and um, uh, tear gas so he could stand in front of a church and wave a Bible. I mean, this, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. And I would love to record how many times in the three and a half years since he's been president that the press has said a new low, right? Because it must be, you know, a hundred different times. Um, and I, you know, I keep saying, thinking that you can't get any lower. And I think yesterday had to be the low point in his, you know, uh, presidency on a humanity uh, side of it. I mean, in an abuse of power too, you know, and, and one thing I want to talk with you, uh, Anzo about is, you know, in the research that you, you've done a bunch of research, I'm sure, into sort of like people's opinions and attitudes towards Trump. And obviously he, he has tried to create this macho, um, forceful, tough guy image, um, to appeal to, you know, his base. Um, and one, to me, a lot of his behavior and his antics are the behavior and antics of a weak person because only a, a strong person, a tough person, a tough president would likely have walked out of the White House and walked through those protesters and maybe maybe talk to them. And, and then if you go on to visit the church, fine. But the fact that he had to use, uh, you know, 
the police, the military, to clear these peaceful protesters out of the way so he could have finally emerged from the White House and walk and not even greet Americans. I, I sometimes don't I, I don't like the word protesters because I think it, uh, it and, and they are protesting, but they're Americans. They're not protesters. They're Americans. And I think sometimes we forget that. But I guess my question is, is how important is it to his profile that he is perceived by his base as strong and tough? And how important is it for Democrats to start stripping that away because it's totally bullshit? Well, I think that he himself has stripped some of that away during the last um, you know, three months. Uh, one of the things that you see in the public poll, not only do you see his numbers going down in terms of the presidential race, we can talk about that later, um, but you see that he always had one of his um, uh, best traits was strong leader. And again, you've seen probably the navigator polling and all of this wonderful polling that's out there by Ipsos and Kaiser, et cetera, uh, on Corona. Um, that his action and actions, people believe that it, it made the health crisis worse, believe that it's actually caused uh, a death, that it's making the economy worse. Um, and so the fact that he has not been um, a leader, um, his numbers uh, in public polls show his leadership traits underwater. Uh, and so he is, in a way, caused the problem himself in his strongest trait. Um, and I think that that I think that that is that's really uh, that's really uh, important. As a matter of fact, I also saw a poll today. I think it was Ipsos that even among Trump voters, when they kind of say, "Hey, which side are you on?" Uh, there was there was a good thirty or forty percent of Trump voters who said they're on the side of the protesters. Um, and so he's again, um, you know, uh, self-inflicted wounds here, but they are ones that I believe. Um, he can't uh, repair, right? He's done, a, I think, a fairly good job in his first three years when he gets into trouble um, to repair them, right? I mean, his numbers have actually been fairly stable. He'll have a bump here or there, but he'll move on to the next wedge issue or he'll move on to the not, next muscle flexing, whether it's, you know, the trade disputes with China or whatever it may be, you know, you know bombing this, bombing that. Um, he has his, his uh, little arsenal of things to try to get his numbers back. But I think that he has irreparable harm here um, on all three fronts, all three crises. Um, and the fact that they're one after the other after the other, and now they're combined, right? They're concentric circles. Um, uh, I think that he has trouble uh, doing the repair um, uh, that, that uh, he may need. And remember, you know, the economy is in shambles, um, and that has always been his oxygen. Uh, and I, that, again, has, has been a strength that is now a weakness uh, alongside, you know, what used to be a strength, which was his strong leadership trait, is now a weakness. Uh, Anzo, can you tell our listeners how how's the campaign preparing for the general election? It's been an interesting, obviously, few months, to say the least. Um, the type of campaigning that we're we're used to seeing hasn't occurred. Um, we're heading into a critical, you know, two or three month period of time where decisions about the convention are going to have to be made, running mate decisions are being made, but also a lot of the sort of 
you know, uh, blocking and tackling of a campaign occurs right now where you're hiring staff in different battleground states. You're building out voter contact plans there. You're doing a lot of research. You're trying to come up, you know, you're starting to put together, you know, the creative plan. So I'm just curious, could you sort of give us a sense of, you know, how, how the campaign is operating in terms of this environment and where things stand in terms of like getting preparing for the general election? Yeah, certainly a little bit. Uh, it's not necessarily my bucket, but I mean, listen, we are, meaning the Biden campaign, um, stacked with talented people. And it has just been um, such a blessing to have Jen O'Malley, who you know really well, come in uh, in a leadership role managing this campaign and restructuring this campaign. I mean, you see the the new hires um, all the time, right? Um, uh, you see uh, Jen Ritter, who is going to oversee battleground states as well as um, Molly Rittner, you know, two incredibly talented people, you know, Adisu Demese, who you saw um, uh, announced uh, yesterday, who's going to uh, um, kind of oversee a lot of the, um, uh, uh, the convention along with Stephanie Cutter. I mean, these are like really talented people, right? And so, you know, all of the state um, uh, by state directors at some point will be uh, announced uh, from the restructuring. And, you know, just listen, the Democratic um, uh, uh, campaign uh, world has really talented people. And I think that there is a sense of mission uh, of what is at stake here. Uh, and you see a lot of people around the country who have really good jobs and make really good money who are saying, I want in because the number one important thing of my lifetime has been to beat Donald Trump. Uh, and so there's this all hands on deck mentality, uh, I think, within not only the Biden campaign, but within the Democratic political community. Right. Um, and I think that that's also uh, you're going to also see that in spending. I mean, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of um, narrative about Trump having a spending advantage. I think at the end of the day, when you add up all of the entities, um, we're going to see that it's going to be very, very competitive because of what's at stake here and the mission uh, that we have um, as a community uh, to beat this guy because he's so bad for America. Where are we with uh, the polling in battleground states? I've seen a lot of national polls. Um, Most of them showed Biden up by um, five, six, 10 points. I think the ABC poll had him up by 10. But where are we in the key battlegrounds? And for our listeners, can you go through just sort of, I, I don't want you to reveal any sort of strategy that is internal, but, you know, the, the states that people should be looking at and caring about. Yeah, listen, I think that, you know, the public polling has actually been really good about breaking out the battleground states. Um, I believe that the ABC Washington Post poll did that. Um, Quinnipiac and Monmouth usually do that. I mean, you know, the ABC Washington Post poll, which is a, a high standard poll, had Biden up 10. The Quinnipiac, you know, had him up 11. Uh, there was another poll that week, I think Monmouth, who had him up 11. So there's been real consistency um, in terms of, you know, what you're looking at, at, what you're looking the margin at. The Fox News poll recently had him up eight. You know, the real clear politics um, average, I think, is something like um, something uh, like six. And when they pull the battleground states, the interesting thing is that it's mimicking the national. And that is very unusual, right? Um, usually the national numbers give the Democrat uh, a different advantage. And it's really 
heartening that the battleground states are actually high single digits, double digits, depending on the poll. And, you know, listen, the public polls that we see in the battleground states that are usually pulled out are the three in the upper Midwest, right, that Trump won by a combined of just 60,000 votes. And that's Wisconsin. It's Michigan. Uh, it's Pennsylvania. Uh, then you have what you might consider uh, southern states, uh, North Carolina, kind of the New South, uh, in Florida. Uh, and, and they're, of course, um, you know, always kind of uh, put in there uh, as well. Um, and then, you know, you have Nevada, which um, uh, Hillary Clinton won, but not by a whole lot. Uh, so that's usually put in, again, as a, a battleground state in the public polls. Um, you kind of have the expansion state. Uh, of Arizona, because it was in itself very close, uh, as was Minnesota, which again, and, and New Hampshire, which the Democrats won, but by a very small margin. Um, I'm probably missing one uh, or two, um, but that tends to be um, the states um, that that you look at or the, that the public polls look at. Uh, what is driving Biden's so I have two questions for you. Uh, one, what is driving Biden's advantage? Uh, is there anything in there that you can tell uh, when you look at the cross tabs and you know the guts of the polling? And then two, we talk a lot about enthusiasm um, on both sides of yeah. the political spectrum, and there's this, there is this um, a narrative I think that exists that you know the enthusiasm was you know obviously sky high for Democrats in 2018. Now in 2020, like they're sort of trying to catch up to where the enthusiasm is with the Trump voters. One, what's your take on that? If is that you know, yeah. do you believe that's true? And then two, does it really matter? I mean, enthusiasm matters, but is there? What's your sense of how important that is, and where are we in terms yeah. of that enthusiasm? Um, gap. As a pollster, I tend to think that there's a little, you know, overvaluing and, and too much of a narrative uh, from reporters on enthusiasm. First of all, it's really hard to gauge in a poll and a diagnostic. But here's the point I would make. I think there's two things to, to think about uh, on enthusiasm. If Biden has a six or a 10 point lead, depending on, you know, what you want to believe. Um, and uh, in some polls, it's really strange because in some polls, Biden's enthusiasm is higher than Trump's. In some polls, they measure Trump's is higher than uh, than Biden's. But even if you believe that Trump's is, is higher than Biden's, you got to remember, do the math. Uh, it's higher with a uh, base that is 10 points lower in public polling uh, than Biden's. You see where I'm going there? Um, so that's important. Okay. The second thing is, is, um, and I think that this is important, regardless of whether you believe or not what the enthusiasm is of Biden, the enthusiasm to beat Trump is incredibly high. That's what's important. We are voting on whether to rehire or fire an incumbent. So what's important is the enthusiasm to get rid of him. And, you know, you've seen in public polling that the universe who say they definitely will not vote for Trump is nearing 50%. And that's really important. And you've also seen in public polling that Biden is at 50 or above 50%, which again, was not the, ever the case uh, with Hillary Clinton. And so there's real good dynamics there in terms of uh, the enthusiasm, because again, going back to almost impossible for Trump to repair 
um, some of his numbers. And again, this isn't to be boisterous or, or arrogant or overconfident. We know that in presidential elections, everything tightens up. But sitting here in June, knowing that Trump is not a hypothetical candidate like he was in 2016 to be president, that he is being judged on his performance in the last three and a half years, we are in a much different situation than 2016. And so Biden is in a really good one. Now, to go to your first question, where, where is this race demographically? It is fascinating. For example, if you take a look at the ABC Washington Post poll, which has been, you know, fairly consistent with some of the other polls like Quinnipiac and Fox, is that Biden's coalition, you know, is in some ways a lot different than Obama's or a lot different than Hillary Clinton's. Uh, and you saw some of this starting to take shape in 2018. Um, but Biden is winning with groups that both Trump and Romney won. And that's important, that Romney won. So seniors, suburbanites, college-educated voters, independents. Trump won those groups and Romney won those groups. So in a way, Joe Biden is actually expanding on the Obama coalition. People love to talk about the Obama coalition. I get it. You know, every what my point to, to most people are every presidential candidate, Democrat or Republican, has their own unique um, coalition. Right. And Biden in that uh, ABC poll leading uh, among uh, seniors, 65 and over, Trump won them by seven. Um, he was leading with white college grads by four points, um, and uh, Trump won those. He was leading that, leading uh, uh, suburbanites, um, Biden was, and uh, Trump won them by five points. And very important is Biden was just, you know, killing Trump with independence when Trump won them by six points um, in uh, 2016. And so, again, uh, you know, a lot of polling was off in 2016, and we probably aren't all going to believe it until election night. Uh, and you know, Lester Holt calls it. Uh, but the fact is, is that this is in 2016 because voters are judging uh, Trump on three and a half years uh, of actions and inactions, and that really is important. I'll let that be the final word. Um, Anzo, thanks, buddy, for coming on the Electables. I appreciate it. Um, it, it's oh, it's always great to be here. It's always great to hear your voice, and we appreciate what you do. and And stay safe. Thank you, buddy. You stay safe as well. Um, for uh, my producer Michael Peliquin, and for my partner in crime Adrian Elrod, who is on a hiatus right now. This is Doug Thornell. This has been another edition of the Electables. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and look out for one another. See you next time.